Hi, this is Jean Nathan, and it is time for Crosstown Conversations. And um, it's also time for Women's History Month. And so uh, today and uh, every other show this month will be about um, women in all walks of life, um, primarily in our city of New Orleans. And, um, or people who may have been living here and have gone elsewhere or um, have come from elsewhere, but we're gonna celebrate women. And I think you'll enjoy um, both the interviews we have on today. I am so excited about having Irma Thomas on the show. We, we have known each other for years. <laughs> um, I've, I've, I guess the first time I ever really uh, worked with you closely was for the Do Drop In series, that festival that we did at the Contemporary Arts Center, at, not too long after we actually opened it. And right. um, it was, um, of course, my fondest memory is the show that we put together with you and um, Aaron Neville. Right, right. Kind of Duo thing. First time he had on a tuxedo. <laughs> oh, is that true? Oh, I didn't even. He said that. it. He said that was his first time putting on I a tuxedo. That. And it was a white one at that. <laughs> also, I think one of the first times either one of you had either done a duo Joke together, together right. Mm -hmm. right? So I was very proud of having put you all together. And then we had Wardell Kayser, who mm -hmm. actually produced the show. So right. that was just that was one of the highlights of the whole series. We did that for about six years, and the and the um, Jazz and Heritage Festival kept kind of, you know, jumping on the train. And so I finally said, "Okay, go ahead." <laughs> um, but um, Irma, as as well as I know you and have followed your career, and and of course hear you sing all the time, I can't say that I know that much about your younger years and and when you actually first started singing and what that was like and, and what persuaded you to actually pursue what is a difficult thing. Most people think, oh, artists and performers, they have a, you know, it's a piece of cake. No, we know how hard it is. It's a very difficult field because it's a crapshoot. You don't know whether you're going to be able to um, really get the attention that you should for your talent or not. There's a lot of very talented people out there who never see uh, any public. And so, Tell me about the actual earliest time that you as a young child were singing, in what context and what persuaded you that this was something that you should develop? Well, first of all, I can't remember when I couldn't sing because being a Southern girl raised in the South, whatever talent you have, it was gonna be showcased when you're in church. And so I can't remember when I have not been in front of an audience at some point in my life. Uh, as little as I would say three or four years old, you know, I was in front of the church congregation reciting either scriptures or poems someone had written for me to learn or sing a little song, which they teach the little kids, you know, like, yes, Jesus loved me, that song. And then it continued in school uh, as far as the singing, but I thought everybody did it because we did it to entertain each other in school and at home. And so later years when I became a mother and, and had to support myself and look for jobs, uh, I did, uh, I was working at Copper Kitchens, which used to be located on Tulane and, and uh, Carrollton. That was a, it's a service station there now, but it used to be a little, a little kind of like a White Castle restaurant that served quick orders, uh, short orders and stuff like that. Right. And I was a dishwasher there and I was keeping myself company because I was working the 11 to seven shift. 
and I was keeping myself company and I got fired for singing on the job. That was the first you time. You got fired for singing yeah. on the job. Yeah. And then the next time I, I acquired a job, uh, once again, it had to be in the evening because my parents was my babysitter. So I was working at a club as a waitress called the Pimlico Club, which used to be located on South Broad and Eve Street. And uh, my Caucasian boss there said he hired me to be a waitress, not singing. And I got fired for singing on the job again. But I mean, to show you how dumb he was, the people was asking for the singing waitress and he didn't take advantage of that. Instead, he fired me. So he didn't hire me to sing. He hired me to wait tables. Can I so, ask you a question? <laughs> what did you think that was really all about? What was that about? Well, he was just How a dumb man. That's all. He was. He was just dumb, and and he didn't understand the the quality of what he had available to him, and and uh, he fired me. But at the time he fired me, Tommy Ridgely was the band that I was getting up singing with all the time, and Tommy Ridgely told me about a, an audition that he wanted me to go to, and I thought he was joking, so I didn't show up. And he came and got me, and he brought me to Ron Records on Barone Street, and I auditioned for Ron Records like on a Monday and Wednesday I was in a recording studio recording a song called You Could Have My Husband But Please Don't Mess With My Man. And <laughs> this history. <laughs> but oh, I can't I can't ever remember not, you know, not being a performer of some kind. But and it came natural to me because I enjoyed being in front of an audience and so I was never shy. I don't know what that is. Uh, even in school, you know, I was always uh, among those who were assigned to do singing duties, being during the holidays, going to the various uh, nursing homes and entertaining the senior citizens. And whatever representation the school needed, it was either me and a young man named uh, Henry Carbo, who was the younger brother of the Spiders, the Carbo brothers. Carbo, and that, uh, oh, that the younger brother Carbo, was Henry Carbo. Yeah, and when he went into the Navy and got out of the Navy, he moved to California. But he was he was my singing cohort back in the day in junior high school, and we recorded the school song at Cosmo Studio on Rampart Street, the McDonough Forty One School song. So, you know, like I say, I can't remember when I couldn't sing and I didn't realize that I had anything special until my sixth grade teacher took me to, an, to a, a talent show at the Carver Theater because she, she lived in, in, in the, in the uh, well, they called it the Seventh Ward. And she took me to the Carver Theater to, to a talent show. And the first time I went- On Orlean Street, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Same mm -hmm. Carver Theater. Mm -hmm. And she took me there. And the first night I, I sung, I sung Too Young by Nat King Cole. And I came in second. And then she took me back a third time and I came in first. But I mean, you know, I've had experiences. It was like, it was all natural to me. I, I didn't have sense enough to get excited. <laughs> it sounds like you had something that I hear a lot when I talk to people about the beginnings. I, I hear this, that there was somebody uh, there who mentored you or who cared about your ability and your talent and advanced you. The same thing happened to me when I was in high school and I had a teacher who recognized my interest in history and he told me to apply for a school. Cornell, Cornell University is an Ivy League school, very expensive, but they have one land grant school called the Industrial and Labor Relations School where there's no tuition. He said, apply there. I applied there. I got in. I got a scholarship and I wound up with an Ivy League education that I didn't have to pay for because of my teacher. Right. So you're talking about, you know, Tommy 
And um, and, well, and prior to prior to Tommy Ridgely and, and my getting fired, I can I can remember earlier than that when my well, in, when I lived in Greensburg, Louisiana, there was a school called New Star School. And it was a one giant building that had four grades in it. And the teacher that I was under was the one who taught the first, second, and third grade. And then there was another teacher who taught fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And I was under the, the Miss, Miss, uh, Miss Clovis Hurst was my teacher. And she put on a play called Cinderella. And I, I don't know how I got in it to be singing, you know, Tennessee Waltz. But for some reason, she wanted me to sing Tennessee Waltz in her play called Cinderella. But that was my first time, you know, being active as a school singer. And that goes back to, I couldn't tell you if I was in second or third grade or what, because it was all three grades in the same room. And I didn't really start getting into an actual grade until I came back to New Orleans when I came uh, and I was nine years old. And I came back to New Orleans to live with my parents because I was living in Greensburg with my dad's sister. And when I came back to New Orleans to live with my parents, I came back to the fifth grade at John W. Hoffman School, which was on South Claiborne when Claiborne Avenue still had a canal in the middle of it. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I've had earlier, I can't remember, like I said, I can't remember when I have not been in front of an audience of some kind doing singing. So I just, to me, it was a natural thing because I thought everybody did it, everybody around me sung. And they didn't make any special, they didn't make me feel like I was anything special because all of us did it. And so I felt very comfortable with, with my surroundings. Let's, let's, let's um, advance forward to when you actually decide at some point, and I'd like to know when and why, to, to make this your profession, to make this your career. Well, when and, you get fired for singing on the job a couple of times, you don't have much choice, but that is your career. That's your, that's your mode of earning a living. And I can remember when Tommy, after Tommy had taken me for the audition and I did the recording, prior to the recording coming out, he took me on a show with him to uh, uh, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi to the 100 Men's Hall. And, and he had a show going on that night and he wanted me to be one of his lead singers. And it rained all day that day. And so he didn't make very much money because he was working for the door, which, you know, I became aware of that after the fact. And I gave my share of the gas money to get back home, which my 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 earnings that night was, I think, two or two or three dollars. And I gave my 25 cents for the gas. Because oh. gas was 27 cents a gallon back then. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> Can anybody remember when gas was 26.6? Yeah, I do. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you know, I've had, I didn't, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a choice for me. I, I didn't have any other choice. I didn't complete high school, so I didn't have a formal complete education, but I did complete eight years, which was back then it was equivalent to 12 years now. Uh, but, you know, I was smart enough and, and, and had enough education to understand that I had to earn a living. And if this kind of uh, singing was going to help me earn a living, so be it. And in the meantime, when I wasn't doing singing jobs with Tommy or whichever band that I was working with, I looked for various jobs at various restaurants, you know, during that time. But of course, when you don't have a talent such as having a skill of any kind, it's difficult at best. But, you know, I got by and, you know, I've earned enough money with with Tommy on occasions and other bands that were, you know, different other bands that hired me to work with them that I was able to make some money to survive on. So, so it was really in a sense, 
um, the band leaders that that uh, brought you forward. But um, then you go into recording and and you you really make a commitment to uh, whenever it happened that you really start focusing on this is it, this is what I'm going to do. Talk to me about what it was like working in the music industry, so to speak, at that time as a woman, and not only a woman, but a woman of color. Well, uh, to be honest with you, it, it didn't matter whether you were a woman or, or a man back then of color. You didn't, you weren't given a lot of information about the, the, the business aspects of the music business. So you were given a contract and your contract was little or nothing because you were given, your contract stated you either making two, 2% or 4% of gross and they took out everything against your your recordings and everything was deducted from your money. So you never really saw a royalty check. I didn't actually start seeing a royalty check until years later. <laughs> I mean, when I say, I mean, years later. And so you you had to you know you had to have uh, what we call night gigs or you know one on one shows to to make ends meet because you didn't actually make any money from records. Hmm. And so you did you weren't given you weren't given that kind of information to be able to negotiate to where you were actually going to make some money. So it didn't just happen to just females; it happened to males as well. And then of course. Uh, you know, you had to deal with the prejudices of travel. Uh, you couldn't just decide you're gonna, when you got to a, a specific city, you couldn't decide that, okay, we're gonna go check in a, a hotel because there really weren't any hotels that was welcoming uh, black entertainers in general. So most of the time we would go on the road and play a job and drive all the way back to New Orleans. So yes. you had somewhere to sleep. So it, it really was, it was tough when you look back on it, but we did did what we had to do because that's the way it was. And so you didn't, at that time, you didn't really, you know, judge it as to being good, bad, or indifferent. It was the way it was, and that's how you survived. You played your jobs, and you you if you didn't if you didn't have you couldn't check in a hotel. A lot of people, black people who own large homes had extra rooms, they would, you know, rent you a room overnight for a couple of bucks and you could stay there if it was too far to drive back home. But up until the late sixties, there wasn't a hotel that would allow black people to check in. So you consequently, you made those long drives, sometimes six and 700 mile drives back home every night. Wow. So it really wasn't easy, but that's the way it was. And so you did what you had to do to, to get through the, the time. Did you did you ever, um, were you part of the do drop-in scene, the original do drop-in? Yes, yes, okay. yes. I used to work weekends then when Mr. Frank Panier was still alive. Uh, I used to work weekends at, at, at Mr. Panier's place and made $12 a night, which back then was a lot of money. <laughs> well... My rent was only $12 a week. So if I worked three nights, three nights on the weekend, I could pay my rent and whatever other bills I had, you know, and I was doing, I used to work for him uh, on a regular basis. I must've worked that good three or four months every weekend. And that's where I learned so a lot of part my, of like the house band. The house, I was part of the house entertainment. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Patsy Valdez, who was the, as we call MC. him, host, and he was the MC. Uh, she was the MC, depending on what she, whether she was in drag or not, because she didn't always dress in drag. But uh, that's who taught me hip shaking mama. 
<laughs> but I didn't, I don't sing all the verses because some of them are rather risque. But anyway, uh, I, I learned a lot about show business from Patsy, but, but he taught me what he knew about from his perspective. But I, I, I used to work there regularly. Yeah, it was a fun place to be. <laughs> did, did you have, um, I mean, what I heard about it, I guess I think I think I first heard about it. So I did a, um, the first fundraiser for the Contemporary Arts Center was a solo show with um, Alan Toussaint. And he is the one who told me about the Dewdrop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I checked in further into it. And that's how we wound up doing the Dewdrop series that we did. But mm -hmm. um, uh, did you have people who were um, uh, jamming with your band during the show? Well, that's I, I didn't have a band at the Dewdrop. The Dewdrop had a house band, which at one point. But I mean, what's a house band? Yeah, at one time, Alan Toussaint was one of the members of the house band. He played a B3 organ, and I think that was him and a drummer and maybe a guitarist, uh, him and a drummer and maybe a horn man. It, it, it varied from week to week, depending on what he his choice of musicians to accompany him. But I sung along with what that, whoever house band was available there at that time. I didn't have my own backup band then. It was years later before I got my own backup band. Mm -hmm. when, when, does, when did that happen? And how did um, how how did that come to be? How did you put your band together? Well, years later, I, I I didn't so much do it myself. There was a gentleman who used to do a lot of bookings called Percy Stovall, who was a a local, I guess you would say, promoter in his own right. He would put shows together, and he had a band that he put together, and and, and he would hire uh, people like Johnny Adams, myself, uh, whoever was popular at the time, and he would hire us to play along with he would bring in another major act and he would book shows along the, the coast from new orleans all the way down to florida and back and we would play shows with him but i didn't come into having my own band until the late 60s when i had a group called the taranados it was a band that we called the taranados and uh, and uh, they were they were a top-notch group back then uh, Rain, uh, you know, I had some of the better musicians at the city, right? Walter Washington was my guitar player. Oh. <laughs> Roger Lewis was one of my horn men, you know, back in the day. And this was in the late, late 60s. And I had a club, that club that we used to play regularly then was called the, the Shadowland. Shadow? The Shadowland. It was on Shadow Washington Land. Avenue, up right. the street from the graveyard. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I have often heard from performers is how they feel that they are really um, offering something and contributing something to their uh, audience, that you are doing something for the audience in a sense. Is that, is that a feeling that you shared? Yeah, when you're entertaining the audience, you they you're entertaining them, but you get as you get entertained as, as you get entertained as much as you're entertaining them. Especially mm -hmm. when you when you're looking at a dancing crowd, there's some funny things happen on the dance floor. <laughs> but I get as I get as as much enjoyment from being the entertainer as they do from watching the entertainer. I don't sing at people; I sing to them. And uh, early in my career, I started taking requests for various popular songs that were 
asked to for me to sing which was ever popular on the radio if I knew it I would sing and if I didn't I tell them I don't know that one <laughs> and I still open that up to the, my audience to allow them to ask for various songs because I want them to be completely happy when they leave because if, they, if it's anything that's disgusting is you spend whatever price you're going to spend to buy a ticket to go see an artist and they never sing your favorite song that you're actually going to hear from them they'll be promoting their their latest at that time the latest album or the latest CD or whatever was popular at that time, and you didn't get to hear what you wanted to hear. So I leave that door open for my audience to ask for what they want. I can always promote the fact that I have a new CD and let them know. Look, I'm going to do a couple of songs because this is my new CD, and I'm going to do a couple of songs from that CD, and then go back into doing the requested songs that they want to hear and consequently not really a consequence but to my advantage they would actually go out and buy the new record because i gave them what they wanted to hear and i gave them a little bit off that so they would go buy it and see what they liked on it and next time they saw me well i want to hear this from your new cd and and that's how i did my promotions but i tried to always leave my audience happy because like like i say it's the worst thing in the world is to spend at that time spending $30 or $40 for a ticket was a lot of money and it's even worse now. And you go spend half a night to go see an act and that person don't sing your favorite song. You're very disappointed. You know, I don't care how good they are, but they didn't do your favorite song. So that doesn't take away from the fact that they're talented, but they didn't do your favorite song. And that's what you paid to go hear. Yeah. Uh, speaking of favorite songs, that was my next question. What What are your, some of your favorite songs? All except one that I've ever recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, I choose songs to record that I know I have to live with. And I've only sung, I've only recorded one song that I don't do because I didn't really want to do it to begin with. But that was a song I recorded for James Brown. It's called It's a Man's Woman's World. I didn't want to sing it to begin with because I didn't feel it. And so yeah. when it's whenever it's requested, I let them know up front, look, I'm not doing that one because I don't remember it. First of all, I don't, I don't like it. So I don't really perform it. But he sold a few of the records. I can't. I, can't, um, I, I uh, recently I did an interview with um, Dee Dee Bridgewater, and um, she talked a lot about um, how she had to really kind of um, take care of herself. You know, uh, uh, be, have her own back, so to speak, and yeah. work with and, and, and be strong in, yeah. in in a world that um, is not necessarily handing things to you on a, uh, on a silver platter. Um, so I, I have to ask you that. I mean, I, I've always thought of you as a strong person. Of course, you have a strong partner too, your husband and, yeah, and business yeah. partner. Well, I didn't always have him as my 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 strong partner, but I, I feel very blessed, Gene, in that uh, during my career, the few people who were in my life, men who were in my life, they kind of took me under their wing as their little sister. And they would tell me uh, various things where I'm like, this is, this is something that you should look out for. Or you should look out for that. And when you play this club, get your money up front because they're not going to pay you. And, and you know, if you, if you let them get away before you get through, you may not get paid, stuff like that. Uh, so I was blessed in that I had men who worked in the bands that I worked in who really looked out for me, who took me under their wing, as I say, like their little sister or big sister, whatever, but they cared enough about my well-being to look out for me and guide me in the in, in senses what to look out for in the various clubs from the various 
club owners and what have you, because they had some shysters out there. Of and course. so I was I was blessed in that. I, I really I only had one occasion where uh, we did a show and we really didn't do the whole show because when we got ready to get paid, the man didn't have the money. So we didn't do the second show. But that rarely happened with me. And uh, but I, like I say, I was blessed in that I didn't have to deal with it. And then when when my husband came into my life, the gentleman who was supposedly be my manager looking out for me was stealing me blind. He was giving me two contracts, one for me and one for the people he was dealing with. And so my husband now, husband now pointed that out to me because he went with me on a show and he was he was around at the time the payment took place. And the gentleman who owned the club told my husband, who wasn't my husband at the time, we, we, we were just dating, what was going on. And my husband pulled my coat to it. And I got rid of the person who was supposedly at that time to be my manager. He's dead and gone. So I don't even think we'll mention his name anymore. But I was blessed. And like I say, once again, being blessed that I've had strong people uh, to have my back. Yeah, yeah, you know, on yeah. my side. But being a strong woman, you have to be also you have to have the wherewithal to to take heed to whatever information is being given to you. Think it out, think it through and see if it's best suited for you. And I, I have to say, being an only child and having had to fend for myself 95 percent of the time, I was blessed to have that much in intuition to be able to uh, stand up for myself. How do you um, feel about the music scene today in New Orleans as compared with um, years past? And uh, not so much COVID, a moment that we're in, but um, just generally speaking, um, you know, the 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 21st, uh, yeah, the 21st century, so 2021, the time we're in now. How how do you? Uh, view it? How do you feel about it? How is this um, in perspective in, in comparison to uh, your earlier years? Well, the, I, I really feel not so much sorry, but I have sympathy for young people who are trying to get a start in the business now because, I mean, this is leading up to prior to Katrina. Uh, when I was coming up in the business, there were lots of local clubs that had live bands where you could go and you could horn your trade. You know, you can go in, you could perform and the people were honest enough with you to tell you if you had it or you didn't have it or they would tell you, look, you need to learn to do this or you need to learn to do that. Whereas now you don't have that many local clubs with live entertainment where the entertainers themselves would allow you to come in and be able to hone your craft. Uh, after Katrina, there was an influx of a lot of new young people who came on the scene and they were trying to learn from those of us who were around. And so they would come in and sit and listen. They didn't always ask to be a part of the show. For those of us who were more mature than some of the younger ones, if they asked, we would allow them to. And I, the first thing I would ask somebody when they wanted to come up and do a song with my group, do you know the song? And do you know what key? If you don't know what key, sing some of it in the band will follow you. But a lot of the younger ones, younger than me, wouldn't allow anyone else to come on the stage because they were afraid that they would lose their gig. Well, I mean, I never felt intimidated by anybody because if I didn't have the job secure security, I mean, I always felt that I could get another one, but I never felt so insecure that I wouldn't allow a young person or another person who was trying to get the, uh, get the, <coughs> the door, get a, a stronghold in the door, to, to be able to sing because the only way you're going to know if you have it or not is you got to get in front of an audience with a live band and see if you got any sense of 
in a rhythm sense in terms of how to keep up with the music and how to present yourself to an audience. You have to be in front of an audience to learn that. And I had that advantage that a lot of the youngsters today don't have, because like I said, back in the day, you could go in any, any club after nine o'clock at night and then whoever's performing, they'd be glad to see you coming so they could get a break. <laughs> they would let you do a few songs so they could get a break before the break time. So, you know, this is the disadvantage that the young people have today. They don't have that kind of situation to be able to do that. How would you describe the music of New Orleans today as compared with the music of New Orleans, again, in, in some of your younger years? I, I feel, I'm, I'm a little bit out of touch with it because in all honesty, I don't go out at night a lot anymore. Yeah, join um, the club. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, and I'm, and I'm being very upfront and honest about it. Other than my performing at various clubs around the city nowadays, I'm not a clubber either. I wasn't a clubber even back when I was doing what I did in order to get my foot in the door. I didn't drink, so I was a poor subject in terms of if I went into the bar, I was occupying space and wasn't spending any money because I didn't drink. Mm -hmm. So I'm the same way now. My husband would say, honey, you want to go out? I said, well, honey, you know, I'm a one glass person, one glass of wine. I sit there and hold it all night long because I'm not a drinker. So I don't go and occupy space, but I have not gone to a lot of the new clubs that are, are available to young people today. So I couldn't really tell you what's good or bad or indifferent in terms of the music scene, because I'm not out there listening to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear yeah. a lot of people talk about clubs I didn't know existed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's how that's how I am now, too. Yeah. I was a clubber. I mean, I did. I was out every in my sort of second half of the 30s, from 35 to about 40, <laughs> I was out every weekend. But um uh less so now and i i'm not knowledgeable well uh, i think i think what happens as we mature gene uh when i was younger and and after i had gotten my foothold in the business during the say the 70s 80s and 90s i was on the road touring a lot so whatever was happening in new orleans was happening in new orleans but irma was on the road a lot and so a lot of my work was off out of the city of New Orleans, but I would come back home and I there was enough clubs around that I knew about and could go and maybe stick my head in for a couple of minutes and then go home. But nowadays, you know, I've gotten older and the younger, the younger generation of people, they're just a bit young for me to be hanging out with. So I, <laughs> you but know. But you know what, uh, Irma, this will be, um, I'm just about out of time, but here's what I'm gonna say to that. Um, no, you are not older. <laughs> You are unbelievably young, and um, I would say that's probably why you have the reigning title, because you still have it, of Queen of Song. And um, what a pleasure uh, it is to, uh, to check in with you, and um, I hope that the next time we talk to each other, it's not when you're 90. <laughs> well, why not? Why not? I'm still the, the good part about that is I'm still recording because I do have a new a new uh vinyl out called uh Ooh, okay. Yeah, love, love, love is the answer. Love, you know, love is the answer for the world, you know. But anyway, I mean I'm still active in, in terms of performing, I'm just older now, that's all. <laughs> I always jokingly say I can still my do it. Always says, it just takes me longer to get it done. <laughs> oh, my husband insists on saying we're not older. We're just playing. No, we're just maturing. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, Irma Thomas, Queen of Soul, and uh, someone who uh, I enjoyed enormously working with um, in my club days. And um, still love to hear uh, you sing anytime you do. And I catch you more at the jazz fest and clubs. But um, 
Thank you so much for being who you are Pleasure, and for being a part it. of the New Orleans music scene. It's, it's been important for me to, uh, to know you. Um, so you take care. And um, as I say, we'll see you before you're 90. That's all I meant. I okay. want to see you all right. sooner, not later. All right. <laughs> all right. Thank you so, so take much. Care. Take care. Take care. Monique Moss um, saved me from thinking that a city that I assumed would be a big dance town, which when I first got here didn't really seem to be, but then I met Monique, who is a dancer, a choreographer, an educator. Um, I, could, I would call you an organizer and uh, and she's just extremely creative and committed to creativity. Um, so I'm a, a, a really pleased to have her um, on the program and uh, to be interviewing her for our research purposes as well. So Monique, I need to know when you decided you would be a dancer. Because at one point in my life, I thought I was going to be a dancer. And then I undecided it <laughs> for various <laughs> reasons. So tell me when you decided and why, and um, we'll go, we'll go from there. Well, if you well, thanks for having me on, Jean. Hi, I love you. Um, if you ask my father that question about when I decided to become a dancer, he would say I was probably at the age of one. Uh, <laughs> there's this great black and white photograph of me doing a push-up. And uh, he captured it right at the perfect moment. And he said, oh, that girl's going to be a dancer. So, wow. yeah, I think um, in my own mind, it happened at about nine. I started at a school called Deirdre School of Dance at the age of nine as a gymnast. And I did that for three years. And uh, wow. then I shifted into the dance world over there. And I loved it. Couldn't stop this girl from doing the split. So... <laughs> And it's been dance ever since. I mean, that's been my whole world, my whole life. Yeah. So I, I was intimidated by it. You know, I was, I was, it's interesting that you said your father made that observation. So when I was a teenager, I used to borrow records from a library called the Donnell Library, which is kind of an arts oriented library across the street from MoMA in Manhattan. I lived in the Bronx and um, I would bring home these records of Haitian drums and I would dance around the house to those Haitian drums. And I think my father thought I was a little nuts, but I think he had to see that I was just so into dance. <laughs> but I, 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 um, I chickened out from taking it as a full-time profession, although I danced a lot, studied it, um, even took uh, Dance with Yvonne Rayner in New York. I don't know if you knew that. And um, love it, love dance. But it has a peculiar place in New Orleans, and I need to understand that better, because you would think that dance here would be as big a thing as music. And yet, I, I can't say that it is. Do you, do you want to challenge that? Uh, I would not challenge that. I mean, you cannot 
be from New Orleans and not say that music is, you know, not the first thing that comes to mind. Um, but amazingly enough, what's the reason for music? Uh, you know, once the spirit and the soul starts to get that feeling, then the body moves right along, right? right. So uh, in terms of like this, the more stylized dance or uh, so-called professional dance, right. I would, I, 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 I really don't know. That would make a very good thesis uh, to try to understand why the dance didn't um, travel alongside the music uh, in terms of um, prominence in, in public, you know. Uh, but everywhere you look, dance is happening, movement is happening. So maybe people just feel like that's a private experience, you know. The way that I move is the way that I move. Um, the music is accessible to us all, but the way I interpret that music um, could be somewhat of a more intimate experience. So maybe that's a reason why dance didn't become so-called professionally, you know, that's just my take on it anyway. But as uh, I feel like someone who's been grateful enough to live, eat, drink, sleep, dance, my whole life, um, I, I am just glad that it was my world because I cannot imagine life without it. Yeah, so, and I, I think that um, the fact that it was, that dance is so prominent an activity for everybody here on the streets, on their stoop, in their homes, mm -hmm. Um, at the picnic grounds, you know, everywhere. Uh, that, Who wants that, to go pay to watch dance? It, it may be that people really viewed that communal dance as more important. And, um, and, yeah. and said, why go watch it when you do it? You can be a part of it. You already it. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, I mean, not that we didn't dance in the North. I mean, we, we did, you know, we danced. And guess what? Of course, we were dancing to New Orleans music all through my teen years, you know, huh. Let the Good Times Roll, Shirley and Lee was a big part of my life and all those, all the other New Orleans cats. But um, there, there is, a, of course, this very unique forms of dance here that um, are so connected <clears throat> to the heritage, the cultural heritage of the city. Um, yes. So again, and and, I, and it's like the music, there's nobody from somewhere else who can play drums the way New Orleanians play drums. They can try and they can approximate it, but they can't do it. And I think the same thing with dance. I mean, Agreed. I, mean I, I, I learned to dance by copying what other people are doing, right? That's how I got through all, you know, my go-go dance years, I, you probably didn't know that either. But um, so I, I would, you know, learn from other people who had the latest, hippest dance forms and then, um, and then do them. Um, but you can't, you can approximate the New Orleans dance styles that you see on the streets. You can't do them unless you're from here. Explain that to me. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. I agree. I mean, it's it's got to be something in the DNA. It must come from the womb, 
you know, if it's not in your genes, then at least the womb is jiggling, you know, the little bitty body around inside the belly and it gets to know how to do the second line, you know, when the music comes on. But I think that we're onto something in, in terms of um, why, why the dance, as we would call it in other parts of this country, you know, the, the so-called uh, black, black box dance or theater dance or, uh, I, you know, I don't want to use all those words that have in the past been used to validate that form of dance. But um, when, you, when you have the second line and you have uh, Mardi Gras and you have festivals every month, um, why encapsulate the dance, you know? So that may very well be one of those answers to the question. But again, I feel so, so grateful, Jean, that I was able to experience uh, dancing in the community with my people growing up, you know, having a brother who is, you know, part of a, uh, the Soul Rebels brass band, you know. Oh, and I didn't know that. Yeah, Derek Moss, who was also drum major oh, yeah. for Southern and Baton Rouge, you know, so I had that music thing going on and there was always a reason to dance. So um, I feel really great that I had the the community, you know, native New Orleans dance thing, Congo Square, drumming, you know, all of that. And... I studied dance in, you know, the so-called contemporary forms, uh, some of the folkloric forms, eventually Haitian folklore. And um, I guess that's why I'm here today. <laughs> so <laughs> as you moved into the professional dancing and into the contemporary dance, and I, I've seen your choreography, of course, I worked with you on a couple productions and, um, I'm familiar and I, I recognize it as um, purely and definitely in the contemporary dance idiom, if that's the right way to say it. Um, so tell me about how you feel about that kind of dancing versus the communal New Orleans dancing. How, how, how are you um, kind of thinking and feeling in those two different dance forms? The best answer for that for me today is that they are not separate. There was a time in my life, though, where I felt that I was studying um, contemporary forms of dance, uh, it, particularly in the modern genre, you know, some of the so-called uh, pioneers, you know, the Ruth St. Dennis, Hanya Holmes, and Martha Grahams, and uh, Dennis Shawns, and, you know, those coming out of some of the German schools, who were considered to be contemporary or pioneers of modern dance. Um, but obviously in today's time, you would look at those forms as being Eurocentric. Um, and so I did have that background, but eventually I also began delving pretty deeply into more Afrocentric dance forms, Caribbean dance forms, um, and particularly Haitian and Cuban dance. Mm -hmm. And um, when you begin to study the history 
of New Orleans really deeply. I don't mean just being born and raised here and knowing your grandma and your mom and them and all that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm talking more really delving into archives, looking at the colonial period, the, 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 you know, the French period, the Spanish period, all the different peoples that came through this, this place. Um, you, you tend to get hooked on wanting to know more about who you are and the city that you love so much. Uh, really, what is it rooted in? What drives us so to, to be so such a unique people? Um, and anyone who lives who's lived here 10 years plus, you know, you, you can get this feeling, right? You, you want to call yourself a New Orleanian, right? Right. So um, for me, it meant going as far back as I possibly could. And we all you know, know what that means. That means I need to know about my African heritage and history. Um, I need to know not just the genealogy, the, 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 the tree, the family tree. I need to know specifics. You know. So you know, I got a, a wonderful opportunity to travel to the Congo with uh, Papa Tito's Sampa and his brother Jean-Claude Bisa uh in 2019 and i had traveled prior uh to south africa and swaziland in the year of uh in 2000 um to to put my feet on the earth you know so to speak uh and it's a it's a magical thing to feel that you have been in a space where you know your ancestors may have walked, you know, I say no and may in the same sentence because you know that it's highly possible, right? You feel them. And New Orleans is exact, exactly that. It is all of these different geopolitical spaces converging into one space. And that's what's so compelling about this vortex, which is what we lie on the rim of. We are the vortex. Mm. And so back to the, the, the dance, you know, all of that convergence, that confluence of thought, philosophy, ideology, culture, um, experience, present, past, tradition, my, it's all there wrapped up into this one space. And um, and so the dance for me, with its twin, the music, it, it becomes all of those things. And it's expressed in all and in, in like us like spokes on a wheel. Um, the energies come from so many different places and it feels metaphysical. What is the most difficult um, aspect of being a dancer and a choreographer, whether in New Orleans or anywhere. Uh, that is a little bit of a non sequitur from what you've been talking about, but um, I, I think um, I think you've met, we got your point on that and I, and I understand and agree with it. And the one thing I, I would like to maybe delve into a little bit more before our conversation is over is the Haitian uh, component, because I think a lot of people don't 
understand and appreciate how powerful that is here. Um, those who remember that after the revolution in Haiti, a lot of people came here and we almost doubled our population as I understand it with um, Haitian population and that had, it had an enormous impact on the city. But um, going to um, what would promote dance better in the city, because ultimately I'm reaching for how do we make um, things more uh, develop, grow the dance component of our culture here. Um, what are some of the more difficult things that need to be addressed? And, and I also wanna ask about COVID and, and how you dealt through the COVID period and, and then how you see the future as we come out of it. Lot, that, that was a lot in one sentence, but um, <laughs> let's start back with um, just uh, what are some of the difficulties that, you, that we need to think about and, and, and see how, how we can address them better. Well, a dancer, someone who is attempting to make a living at performing, uh, presenting uh, through the art form of dance is someone trying to make a living just as a musician would, just as a, a visual artist would, just as any other artist would. And so if there is a commitment to support the art form as a true um, expression um, of the spirits of humanity, of culture, then there really should be no question as to why it should be supported any differently than any other art form. And presently it is not. Presently it is not. And I cannot tell you at one point in my lifetime where I felt that it was uh, supported in a way that came even close to being equitable to say the music world, the music industry. So how do we do that? Um, present the artists with the resources that are needed in order to do the work. What does that mean? What resources? Resources meaning artist fees, access to space, access to whatever means the dance artist, the choreographer would need in order to manifest the work and then pay bills. And not just pay bills, but flourish. Right. It, support the creative flow. Um, yeah you know, inspire the artists, continue to, to provoke controversy or provoke question and answer um, dialogue. You know, if you believe that dance is an art form with the ability to uplift humanity, then let's support it in the way that any other profession that would be held to that esteem would be supported. What would be the best way to try to approach that through the schools, through um, state funding, through all right? Here's one sponsorship. How, how do you how do you do those things? How do you make those things happen? Here's here's one quick thought. Um, one of the times when I was in Haiti, and I've traveled to Haiti uh, quite a few times, um, I was told about a national dance company, which was supported in the 1930s. I believe Cuba has done this as well. 
Perhaps we need um, something like a national dance consortium, which is supported by the federal government, where uh, the theater is there, rehearsal space is there, performance is there, um, and it is basically a government-supported company, and not just one. Maybe there's an African dance company, there's a modern dance company, there's a ballet company, there, there's a second line coming, you know, just government supported meaning. And when I say government supported, I don't mean that the government controls the ideas or the inspiration. I mean, it is basically free resource all the way around. So it's pretty hard, though, to achieve that investment without the unintended but um, almost implicit uh, editing, in a sense, censorship as a result of not a, yeah, it can be censorship, as we know from what happened in the visual arts uh, in in recent decades when you know, certain photographers uh, sparked a, a highly um, anti-visual arts um, era, actually. But um, uh, it, it, it's a danger. On the other hand, you're absolutely right. There are countries who have uh, made an investment in the arts in a way that goes well beyond um, the commitments that uh, we have made in our country. And I think that if you did have some kind of national companies, national venues, um, ultimately that generates enough interest in their presentations that it stimulates other independent. Yes. And even, you know, profit-making, theoretically. I mean, there's not a whole lot of profit in the dance world, but, um, you know... <laughs> Uh, uh, let, let, let's say just not government um, derived uh, funding and support. I mean, I think of my years in New York and, and um, there was so much uh, performance in the theaters, but also you had all these little independent groups that, that developed kind of off of that higher, um, more, more um, structured level, say the Broadway, um, mm -hmm the major uh, cultural facilities, the Lincoln centers and so forth. But then you also had, you know, um, all the fantastic venues in the village where uh, there was so much dance. So- Well, um, let's add to that. To be honest with you, my real Monique Moss answer would be a question. Where are all of the philanthropists? So anyone who has a network worth of 1 million or more could easily create a funding source to uplift this world. Uh, Monique, as always, a conversation with you is profoundly um, encouraging and inspiring, as you said, um, looking on the positive and um, I thank you. Thank you so much, Jean. Take care. That's women's history for this week. So this is Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations. Thank you for listening. <laughs>